All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all. We're gonna continue our time of worship by studying God's word. So I hope you have a Bible. Go ahead and open it up to the New Testament. Uh, we've been in Genesis, so uh, Mark chapter 11 is where we're gonna be here this morning, this fine Palm Sunday. I'm gonna read to us beginning in verse one as we get started here. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Someone once said, I think it was the theologian J.I. Packer who said this, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. Say that again, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. That's the dilemma I think we have in our culture here, right? People believe in Jesus, but their Jesus is too small. Their Jesus is a truncated Jesus, a reduced Jesus, a pick and mix Jesus, a a select this verse and that passage, but leave this off because that part of Jesus is uncomfortable. So there are passages where we see in scripture and in the gospels, there are passages where we see the compassion of Jesus, but that's not all that Jesus was. There are passages where we see the zeal and holiness uh, and even righteous anger of Jesus, but that's not all that there was to Jesus, and so there are passages that talk about compassion, and there are passages that talk about holiness, and then there are passages like this one that have a little bit of everything in one place, right? So we see his divinity here, we see his meekness, we see his foreknowledge, we see his righteous anger. So right after our passage, Jesus starts flipping tables over, he's cleansing the temple. So so there's a little bit of everything right here in Mark chapter 11. You take in Mark 11 as a whole, and you don't get a half Christ. You see a Jesus who comforts the afflicted and a Jesus who afflicts the comfortable. And I hope that's what we're gonna see and take away from our time in God's word here this morning. Three pictures of Jesus. Number one, the sovereignty of Jesus is on display. The sovereignty of Jesus is on display. So in verse one to six, what's going on? Mark is talking about the preparations for the big day as Jesus approaches. He's been traveling from Galilee in the north and he's coming down with his disciples from there and he's traveling to the city. He's about to make this grand entrance and there are preparations to be made in order for the entrance to be as grand as it needs to be on Palm Sunday. And in all of it, what we see is this. Jesus demonstrates control over the details. 
He demonstrates control over the details in the big things and in the small things, right? So how do we see it? Just a few things for us to think about. The entrance is public. So uh, in Mark's gospel, one of the things we've seen so far, is you, if, you, if you read through the rest of Mark's gospel leading up to chapter 11, is Jesus is frequently doing things in secrecy. He, he's, he's doing big things with his disciples, or, or he's healing people and saying, don't tell anybody what I just did for you, or he's withdrawing from the crowd. There's no more withdrawing, there's no more secrecy, uh, there, there's no more of that, right? He's orchestrating this massive, very public entrance on this day because from here on, Mark 11 to the end of the gospel, he aims to be noticed, He means for the world to see what's about to happen. So when he worked miracles in the pages of the gospel, so often he's keeping it all under wraps, but when it comes time for his death, interestingly, he comes out of hiding and he says, I'm not gonna be hard to find. You'll know exactly where to find me. I'm gonna make my entrance a pretty big deal. So rulers know about it and peasants and priests and kings and scribes and Greeks and criminals and soldiers. Everybody's in this scene. You read through, time slows down in Mark chapter 11. You're you're not marking with a calendar page after page. You see the clock on the wall and it's ticking. It's minute by minute. Every conversation is recorded, right? These transcripts of conversations because this moment matters more than the rest of human history. This is the hinge of human history, the eternal son of God is about to suffer in the place of sinners so that he might offer redemption to all who repent and believe. The great sacrifice is about to be offered up for the sins of the world. Everybody needs to see this. And everybody needs to see it because one of the things that Jesus says, predicting his suffering, is he says, if I, the son of man, am lifted up, what will happen? I will draw all men unto me. I will draw the world to myself if they see me on the cross. So the entrance is public. The ride is specific. <laughs> the ride is specific. So why, you know, even when you read the passage, I just read it to you, right? There's a sense in which you're kind of saying, Mark, why does this really matter? Why, does it, why don't you just say, why didn't Mark just say, and they brought him a donkey, right? Why, why do we need the details about exchanges? And when you go there, the colt's going to be tied up and untie it. And then if somebody asks you this, here's what you need to say. And then here's what they'll say next, right? Instead, we get these details. So, so we have in our text, Jesus tells them, go to the village. And as soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. So we need to know there's nothing on the odometer of this colt. This has never been written colt. Why we need to know that, who knows, right? So he says, untie it and bring it back here. And if anyone says, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. It's almost humor, right? Injected in that verse two to four, the instructions are specific and the task that Jesus has given his disciples seems risky, right? It's going to appear that Jesus' disciples are stealing this donkey, (laughs) Right, they're going up to this donkey. Donkey doesn't know what's going on. Donkey's tied up, waiting for its owner or whatever donkeys do in that part of the world at this time, right? And it's just being there. And, and he, he says, untie the donkey. And when somebody notices what you're doing and they ask, what are you doing? Jesus says, tell them the Lord needs this. Now, that, that's a hard line to sell, isn't it? I mean, if you're under suspicion for stealing something and somebody just says the Lord needs, I mean, try that at the car dealership this week. <laughs> you go in and just, you, there's a truck that you like, you grab the keys and you start to back it up and they say, what are you doing? Just, the Lord needs this, 
right? It's, it's not gonna, you're probably gonna end up in jail, right? This doesn't go over well. And yet, all these details are included. God is sovereignly arranging, providentially arranging this entire moment. Why? Because in the bigger picture, there have been ancient prophecies not just that Jesus, the Messiah, would come in the fullness of time and that he would enter into Jerusalem to suffer, but there were ancient prophecies about the manner in which the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. 500 years before Mark 11, God says, shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he's coming to Jerusalem, celebrate it when he gets there. He's gonna be on a donkey, not just a donkey, a baby donkey. So Jesus says, there's gonna be a colt, a baby donkey tied up. Untie that baby donkey and I'm riding into Jerusalem. He is fulfilled. For 500 years, that prophecy goes unfulfilled until today. Mark chapter 11, Messiah is gonna ride on the foal of a donkey, the colt, into Jerusalem as had been prophesied. So yes, the details do matter. Everything matters here. The ride is specific. The conversation is prophetic. Jesus tells them, here's what they're gonna say. Here's what you're gonna do. Here's what the colt's gonna do. Here's what they're gonna say. Here's what you're gonna say. Here's what they're going to do. The whole conversation is prophetic. It's one more demonstration of something that we read about the Lord. And he calls himself the Lord. The Lord needs it. Those are loaded words. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath in Mark chapter two, right? So earlier in Mark's gospel, when Jesus uses the word Lord, he's referencing the fact that I've got authority. I've got authority from God. I I bear his identity. I am the son of God, right? So this is one more demonstration. The fact that this conversation is foreknown in all of its details is another demonstration of the divinity of Jesus. What do we read about the Lord in Psalm 139, for example? Lord, the psalmist says, before a word is on my tongue, you know it altogether. You think about the difference between God and us when it comes to absolute omniscience and total foreknowledge of the future. We, we, what do we do? We write down words from conversations that have already happened, and what's that called? It's called history. <laughs> we hear about conversations that took place. We, we write those things down, and that's called history. God can write down words from conversations that haven't yet happened. He can write the transcripts for conversations that are gonna happen this afternoon or 500 years from now. That's not history, that's called awesome. That's, that's called the foreknowledge and omniscience, all-knowing God. You know, Jesus is gonna tell Peter, for example, he says, Peter, um, you think you're gonna stand when everybody else falls. You're gonna fall, you're gonna fold like origami. You're gonna, you're gonna fold in this moment. And he says, before the rooster cries out in the morning, you will have denied me three times. So Jesus foreknew what? (laughs) He foreknew that Peter would deny. He foreknew that Peter would not deny two times or four times, but he would deny three times. And Jesus knew the rooster could count to three. 
He knew that the rooster was gonna wait until that third denial, then the rooster was gonna sing out, right? There's this absolute detailed, specific foreknowledge of the actions of people, the words of people, the actions of animals around the people in near vicinity. It is, it is an awesome thing, our God and his foreknowledge is comprehensive. The entrance is public, the ride is specific, the conversation is prophetic, and their hardest days were predicted. So in a matter of, of a few days, Jesus would be betrayed, arrested, tortured, killed, and buried. And his disciples would be utterly devastated. In Luke chapter 24, they're walking around, kicking up dust. They're in absolute desperation. And even Jesus pulls up alongside, disguised, right? So they can't tell who he is, and he's asking them what's going on. And they're saying, we had hoped we thought that he was the one. They, they'd given up. They thought he's dead, it's over, end of, end of story, right? So all of that is about to happen, but the interesting thing is Jesus knows their hardest day is gonna be his death, and so before his death, he predicts on multiple occasions, let me just tell you how this is gonna go down. The son of man is gonna be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be killed. He's going to be buried. And he's going to be raised. He tells them the whole, the whole narrative arc of where things are going so that when they saw him on the cross, they would know even this was part of God's sovereign design. Even this, your hardest day. God wasn't asleep at the wheel on your hardest day. Their hardest day was predicted, and there should be a sense of comfort in that. Your hardest day was known by God. You think about that for our own lives as followers of Jesus. If our pain is predicted by an all-knowing and good God, we can believe he has a purpose. He has a purpose, even in the midst of our suffering, which we might not understand today or tomorrow or 10 years from now, but we know God has a purpose even in our pain. It's an article of faith. We believe that by faith. You ever think about this? Why do we worry when God is in control? Why do we worry when God is in control? Jesus would say, uh, Paul would write in Philippians chapter four, be anxious for nothing. In everything, give thanks. When we... um, walked out onto the football field on homecoming night for senior night uh, for our daughter Ellie some months back. Um, What they would do is all the seniors were lined up with their parents behind them and they would introduce the senior by name and then roll out the list of the senior's accomplishments in athletics or in academics or whatever it might be. And then they would would share that uh, student's life verse, a verse that particularly a Christian school Uh, a verse that particularly impacts that student. And as we're standing there on the field and they're going through student after student, life verse after life verse, and I was thinking, I haven't asked Ellie what's her life. My life verse changes. So I'm, I'm kind of always morphing and going from thing to thing. That's not true for everybody. And even as they were saying Ellie's name and then reading out some of her accomplishments, I'm just thinking, what's gonna be the verse? I couldn't wait to hear the verse. And, and the announcer read James 1, Two and three, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And I heard that 
verse with everybody else as the announcer read it out. And I, I teared up because, because that verse has grit, doesn't it? That verse puts a stake in the ground that says, life won't be easy, but God will be faithful. That's what that verse says. God, God can even make suffering serviceable to my faith. And in my own heart and mind, I'm just fist pumping. It's like, babe, you chose a good one. That, that verse can serve you well in days to come. May it serve you well in days to come. The sovereignty of Jesus, the humility of Jesus. And so here, as we see everywhere in the Gospels, Jesus' rule is different. Every time they've got expectations about how the Roman Empire does it, or expectations even about how the religious elite or establishment does it, and Jesus just keeps being counterintuitive. He keeps upending the script of how these things are supposed to be done, and they keep looking at him sideways. You know, like a dog does when you make a strange sound, and the dog just kind of turns its head. It's like trying to compute what's going on here. That's sort of like what people do when they encounter Jesus, because he's the Lord, but he doesn't act like Rome. He's got all the power, but he doesn't act like the empire does. He's different. His rule is different. So what do we see? We see the king on a donkey. <laughs> He's not riding in with a, ch with a chariot. He's not riding in on a stallion or a war horse. He, he doesn't arrive on a beast that's fit to bear kings. He arrives on a beast that's fit to bear burdens. And there seems to be a message even in the manner even in the animal that's chosen, there seems to be a sermon tucked inside. He's riding on a beast that's fit to bear burdens. His manner tells you what he's like. He's the king and he's riding in on a donkey. He's the king on a makeshift saddle. So when they untie the colt and there's no miles on the odometer and there's no saddle because this thing's never been written before and they realize we don't want our master to ride bareback. And so what do they do? They start taking their clothes off. They start taking out their outer garments. And this is just, this will have to work. We want to we ease the ride. We want him to have a comfortable ride into Jerusalem. And so they just start throwing the tattered garments of Galilean peasants are the saddle of the king of the universe. It's amazing. The king on a makeshift saddle, the king who isn't above borrowing. You, you take in the whole of Jesus' life, and, and what do you see? Philippians chapter two talks about the one who, who comes from all privilege and all glory and comes down to be, to take the form of a servant, and he's descending into greatness. He's descending into humiliation so that he might then be exalted by God after his crucifixion and his death. And you see that. The king isn't above borrowing. He comes down from heaven, and he's born in a borrowed stable. He crosses the Sea of Galilee in a borrowed boat. He rides into the holy city on a borrowed beast and he's buried in a borrowed tomb. No wonder the lowliest of the low thought, if we cry out, maybe this Jesus will help us. You know, people told Bartimaeus, be quiet, he's not here for you. And Bartimaeus said, I think he is. <laughs> I think he might be. Syrophoenician woman, she cries out. Disciples say, push her away. She says, I think he came for me. <laughs> the woman at the well, the immoral woman, 
multiple story after Zacchaeus up in the tree and the tax collector. Everybody hated him in town and Jesus comes up and says, how about you and me tonight, your place? He comes and the lowliest of the low suddenly have hope that maybe he's here for us. Nobody comes for us. Rome never comes for us. The religious establishment doesn't come for us. But I think he came for us. They got the message. What's the message? Jesus' power is deployed in the service of those who have no strength. Isn't that good news? This is not a God of just brute force and power. He deploys his power in the service of those who have no strength. He tells them in Mark 10, one chapter ago, Toward the end of it, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, the son of man did not come to be served, right? That's one of those moments where the dog turns its head sideways. What does that even mean? That's not, what we, that's not how we expected that sentence to end. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And, and what does Peter say? He says, Lord, don't wash feet. And what does Jesus say? This Lord does. And if you don't let me wash your feet, you can have no part with me. And then suddenly Peter says, well, then wash away. <laughs> wash everything. He's counterintuitive. He's not what you expected. Jesus doesn't come to the city bearing the emblems of military conquest. He's different than everything you've seen that's powerful in the first century world. And it's still true today. How striking is the contrast of worldly glory and worldly power with the meekness of Jesus Christ, the Savior. He is meek. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Who expects the king to be lowly of heart? Who, you ever met a king who's willing to serve you? who says things like, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, who says things like, cast all your cares on me knowing that I care for you. You ever met a king who talks like that? You can meet a king who talks like that this morning. Meet Jesus, the savior of the world. He's not a God of brute power. He's a God who is good and who takes his power and uses it to lift the downcast. Ancient prophecies about how God would come and lift the needy from the ashes and seat them high up with the princes, who gives the barren woman healing. She'll dance with joy like the mother of children. That's the Messiah. When he shows up, he says, I told you that's what I would do when I got here, and I'm just staying on message. The sovereignty of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, and third, the intensity of Jesus. So he said, this would not be a half-truth. This would not be a pick-and-mix Jesus. There's an intensity in Jesus in Mark chapter 11. Yes, he's humble, but he's not to be trifled with. Jesus does things in verse 15 that get religious leaders planning to kill him in verse 18. So, so he, he upsets the status quo in Mark chapter 11. What, what becomes obvious as Mark 11 unfolds is this, Jesus comes to Jerusalem with outsiders and as an outsider. So the people who are preparing the way for Jesus and throwing their garments on the back of the donkey and all the rest, as, they, as he approaches the city, these people are his followers. They've been traveling with him from Galilee, all the way from Galilee in the north. They have made this trek all the way down with Jesus. So. The, the crowds that are cheering for Jesus as he comes into, approaches the city are the people who have been riding with him since Galilee. 
That's the group. So the point that preachers often highlight about how fickle the crowds are, they shout Hosanna and then a few days later they shout crucify him. That's not how this went down. These are two different crowds. So there's a plot twist here. The Galileans shout Hosanna to the son of David and the city of David shouts crucify. That's how this goes. That's why, for example, you need all the gospels, not just Mark's gospel, to fill in the full picture of what's going on. When you read Luke's gospel, in Luke's gospel, people shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Luke writes the very next phrase after they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, says, some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're the ones crying out, tell them to be quiet. Their their theology is off. They don't know the significance of this moment. And Jesus says, yes, they do. You don't. That's why Jesus would respond by saying, if they were to keep silent, the rocks would cry out. They get it. You don't. And Luke goes on in the very next verse to describe what Jerusalem's resistance to Jesus' arrival felt like. It says in Luke's gospel, right here in the same context, as Jesus approached and saw the city, he wept for it and said, the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you. They will crush you. They will not leave one stone on another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. God came to town and you didn't know it. And back here in our text, that explains a little bit of what's going on down in verse 11. Right, verse 11, look at it. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple after looking around at everything since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, in one sense, that's a pretty anticlimactic way to end our passage because it seems to be describing a non-event So Jesus goes, it's like this moment feels pregnant with with significance, and he kind of just looks around. It feels that way, right? You can read it in a way that it just just looks like Jesus looks around and just looks at his watch. It's late. Why Why don't we get on back? No, there's more happening here. You take in the whole scene, you get a better feel for verse 11. It's not just that Jesus is looking around and saying, it's late, let's come back tomorrow. The point is Jesus isn't just looking, he's evaluating. He's sizing up Jerusalem. He's sizing up the city of David. He's sizing up the temple. It's kind of like those reality shows where the, uh, <clears throat> the owner of the business comes in dressed like a customer and, and what he sees playing out is gonna be a major problem because this isn't what the business is about, right? God the son was there when the plans were drawn up for this edifice called the temple of Solomon, it's like Jesus is looking around and he's saying, and this isn't what we had in mind. The temple is not doing what the temple was supposed to do on day one when they cut the ribbon in the time of Solomon. So Jesus looks around and then there's this word about how it was already late and so Jesus leaves that word about it being late, perhaps not referencing the time of day, but more like the conclusion of Jesus saying, time's up. Time's up for the temple. And then he leaves. And it's sort of, many New Testament scholars believe it's an enacted parable. It's God leaving the building. 
God walking out. It's the glory of God departing from the temple. He, he all but writes the word Ichabod on the walls on his way out. And so it's no surprise, if that's the way we're supposed to interpret verse 11, everything follows, right? It's no surprise when you get to the very next verse. On the next day, Jesus comes back and he starts flipping stuff over. The very next day, the first thing that Jesus does in the morning as he's walking toward the temple is he sees a fig tree. From a distance, it looked like the fig tree had fruit on it. It should have fruit on it, but you get up close and it doesn't have any fruit. And Jesus curses the fig tree and withers it. And he, he sees that fig tree and it reminds him of something. The temple. It looks fruitful from a distance. Numbers are up today. Everybody's gathered. Hands are up. Altars burning no fruit, shut her down. That's what's going on. It's, it's Jesus in business attire. It's, it's Jesus dealing. Jesus zealous for God's house. At the very end of the Old Testament, you know how the Old Testament ends? It ends with, with words that would prophesy, uh, anticipate the arrival of Messiah. And what were the words in Malachi chapter three? God says, 400 years before Jesus arrives, at the back of the Old Testament, God says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, but who can endure the day of his coming and who will be able to stand when he appears? It's possible for Jesus to come to church and hate what he sees. That's what Malachi's saying. The Lord is gonna come to his temple and he's not gonna like what he sees. Who can endure the day of his coming. In other words, sometimes when God comes to church, it ends up being a bad day for that church. <laughs> Jesus is gentle with the broken. Told us at the beginning we were gonna see the whole Christ, not just the parts we're comfortable with. Jesus is gentle with the broken, but he doesn't play religious games. And this should be sobering to us. May, may God protect us, Brook Hills, from playing religious games from trifling with holy things, with the holiness of God. The, the flow of Mark's entire gospel is a journey of three successive stages. A, a, it's sort of a road trip is the framework. Jonathan Pennington, New Testament scholar, draws this out. It's Jesus' ministry in Galilee from chapter one, verse 14, to chapter nine, verse 50. It's Jesus' journey to Jerusalem from chapter 10, verse 1 through 52. And it's Jesus' last week in Jerusalem from chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 16, verse 8. And the geographical movements that lay the structure for Mark's gospel contain theological truth. Jesus' ministry is most fruitful the farther he is from Jerusalem. Commentator R.T. France describes the events that take place after Jesus evaluates the temple here in verse 11. R.T. France writes these words, what happens the next morning, when Jesus is gonna cleanse the temple, what happens the next morning will not be a spontaneous act of outrage, but a planned demonstration for maximum exposure to interrupt business as usual. I don't want business as usual, church, do you? What do we want? I want the real Jesus, the whole Christ, to take pleasure in the authenticity of our worship, in the desperation of our prayers, 
Jesus said, where are the prayers? This was supposed to be a house of prayer. Where are the fervent, desperate prayers before God? The beauty of our compassion for struggling people, the fire in our hearts to bring good news to the world. I want my life, I want your life to be a fragrant offering to Jesus Christ. Is that what you want? So what do we do? In light of who God reveals himself to be on that Palm Sunday, the week the world changed, what do, we, what do we do? What's our response? And depending on where you're at, this passage might be speaking comfort or it might be God saying your Jesus is too small. So a few implications from the text for us to take home, Brook Hills. Number one, rest in the fact that God is sovereign. There's comfort in this. Rest in the fact that God is up. There's real comfort for suffering believers in this passage. It's not just that God is good. Praise God that he's good. But he's also sovereign. And let me come at it the other way. It's not just that God is sovereign. He is good. The God who is good is a God who is sovereign. And the God who is sovereign is a God who is good. That's the whole truth. So friend, if that's where you're at, let James 1, 2 go to work on your mind and heart this week. Life won't be easy, but God will be faithful and he's good and he's in charge. Rest in his sovereignty. Second, repent of worship devoid of obedience. Following Jesus has only and always been an all or nothing prospect. Jesus would say, you you can't serve God and money. Jesus let people walk. He laid down the terms of discipleship and if they didn't want the terms, he let them walk. There is a worship that doesn't please God. There is a a way to worship the right God the wrong way. It's worship where our lips are moving but our hearts are far away from God. May we repent of worship devoid of obedience. Third, recover the original purpose of the temple. Light for the nations. You keep reading Mark 11 and what you see is that Jesus is grieved over what he didn't see. He was just as grieved by what he didn't see as he was by what he did see. He said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations and where are the prayers and where are the nations? It was designed to be a house of prayer for the nations and I'm not hearing any prayers and I'm not seeing the nations, for all the machinery of ministry around the temple, the original purpose of the temple faded from view. One of the reasons that we talk as a church about engaging locally and reaching globally, one of the reasons we use language of pray, give, and go is because there's precedent in the Bible for God speaking to his people about his heart for the nations and his people becoming interested in everything else. Brooke Hills, these three responses our takeaways this morning, they're not exhaustive, but they're really significant. You you think about it, you look at these three, you, you prayerfully evaluate that this week. There's a lot of thriving that happens when we don't embrace a half truth masquerading as the whole truth. When we go all in with the whole Christ. That's New Testament Christian faith. That's discipleship. God doesn't ask us to undertake these things in our own strength. The beauty is the Spirit's ready to move. Ready to move us, you and me, and the church in this direction. So let's open ourselves up to his work. Amen.